Recording from Boulder, Colorado on August 20th. 2016, it's Dr. Zen and the Greatest of All Sinners. It's a podcast where two men of great faith and even greater doubt engage in discussion about pop culture, sports, science, history. It's the events of the day as seen through the lens of eternity. It's the seven deadly sins meets the eightfold path. It's Paul Augustinelli meets Jeffrey Lawrence Whedon. Good morning. I'm your host, Ray Augustinelli, and Dr. Zen is my brother, Paul. How you doing, Paul? I'm doing well. Good morning again. Good. And across the table, as always, sits the inimitable, greatest of all sinners, Jeffrey Lawrence Whedon. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Spectacular. Doing great. Great to be here. Very good. We always like to give you a chance, Jeff, at the outset to just give us your some of your thoughts of the week. Yes. Well, last night, this morning, I witnessed the death of one of my favorite local bands, uh, the epilogues. Uh, if you find me even less coherent and competent than usual, uh, I will blame the fact that I was up till a little after two o'clock last night attending the final episode uh, epilogue show. Uh, known as the hardest working band in Denver, which is a lot like being named best personality okay. in high school, I think. Um, I really enjoyed their last show, and after the minor sensation of their song. Uh, the moving song, Hunting Season, mm-hmm. they never seem to gain a lot of traction after that, despite highlights like Fallout and Paradigm Shift, but, which I don't know why it wasn't a bigger hit, and that's something we can explore a little bit. They suffered from uneven performances that seems to be the result sometimes of that crushing local touring scene and that sort of thing. They also seem to be the victim of what I call the Megadeth effect, mm-hmm. which is where your music is both helped and hurt by a idiosyncratic lead singer, particularly in vocal qualities. So singer-guitarist-songwriter Chris Heckman, sort of the uh, Michael Stipe marble-mouthed mumbling during R.E.M.'s Murmur or Fables era Heckman, um, is maybe the best and perhaps worst about the band, which is hard to say because I love what he does. Um, suffers from being mostly inscrutable and seemingly lacking in confidence, moving away from the mic, you know, maybe knowing that it's uh, it's something that's either working and not working and he's afraid of it. Um, and so it'd be interesting to see further incarnations because they can't seem to have uh, having final shows. Um, and then uh, it's um, the thing appears that they're they're having at least, um, a coma, if not a death. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a band that you thought was going to be or should have been more successful than it was? You know, I, I do have a band that comes to mind, a band from the 80s, but really, uh, quite coincidentally, while you were seeing the epilogue show last night, yes. their final show, I happened to be at a show, the first opening show by a band called Prologue. Oh, I had not heard uh, of that. Oh. Who would have thought? That's a yeah. weird, pretty strange coincidence. Yeah, the next big thing. Yeah, they may be. Actually, the band that came to my mind was Aztec Camera, a band from the oh, '80s. Roddy nice. Frame, a young Scotsman, was the lead singer there and songwriter, and essentially the, the main part of the band. They are still around, as I take it. They're making albums, but they really uh, disappeared off the radar after a cu- after a couple of albums, which were really quite special, quite phenomenal. They, do, do you guys remember that band? Remember oh, yeah, that? yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a great, Roddy Frame. Sure, it's a great uh, mention because I love that band. Yeah. And and again, you're like, why weren't they yeah, more yeah, successful? I loved Deep and Wide and Tall, mm-hmm. which is spectacular. So I'm one of the great makeout songs in all of human history. Wow. Yeah, if you can't make it work uh, to Deep and Wide and Tall, you need to break off that relationship. It's over right then. What do you think, Paul? Super crazy coincidence. While you were seeing Epilogue, Jeff and Ray, you were seeing Prologue, I was seeing a band called Chapter One. Whoa. I mean, oh, my God. It's I, it, it is terrible, yes. 
to answer the question, I'm going to go with another 80s band. Uh, Simply Red, you guys remember sure. that? Kind of like the blue-eyed British soul, yeah. red-headed blue-eyed British yeah. soul. In, the, in this case, a couple of good hits. And I just heard them on the radio the other day. Uh-huh. And it was a, you know, where are you now kind of moment. But who I really was seeing last night, and I'm glad that this act genius doesn't fall into the category of never made it as big as she should have because she did is Lucinda Williams saw her last night at the Lions Folks Festival brilliant performance in the kind of late Dylan mumbling slurring <laughs> new whatever she's feeling kind of mode but to me it was uh, it was sheer genius and I'm glad that she has seen the level of accolades and success that she deserves you know how all-consuming and passionate I am about having nothing but excellence exude from this podcast uh, that folks can sign up for uh, on iTunes, right? That's right. So uh, the statistics show that Dr. Zen and the Greatest of All Sinners is lava hot right now with a Simone Biles-like trajectory on the podcast charts. Wow. And you know how much I love both of you and how dear you are, both of you, to me. Correct? Understood. Now, some of our faithful listeners got got in touch uh, with us. Um, and said that the podcast, uh, that one of you clowns could be heard typing during episode two. Which one of you was it? Wasn't me. Just say you're sorry, and we can move on. (laughs) I I, I don't have a keyboard in front of me. You know how important it is that we stick to the carefully curated and manicured script that we've crafted over the last few weeks before every episode to make sure there's not one stray word. If so it, Jeff, get it right, Jeff, Excelsior, Jeff, gentlemen. Jeff, if, if it wasn't Paul or I, is it, is it, is it could, see, within the realm of is possibility it, that it was somebody else? I was there. <laughs> All right. Oh, with, with the keyboard in front of you. With the keyboard in front of you. All right. And ten fingers. All right. So um, let's talk about my drinking. Uh, <laughs> drinking is like a, a malignant virus in some crazy movie that you would be like, it can't possibly work. How could it alter our perception in that way? And that... You never seem to notice how uh, you're starting to slur or how you're less in control of yourself. And it's insidious because when you feel perfectly competent, what does it hurt to have another drink? Uh, This falls right into my 30th high school reunion which was held at, uh, at a, a lovely downtown Denver establishment because I learned my lesson uh, after drinking 45% of my body weight in Kolsch at the Ryan House <laughs> in downtown Denver and being blackballed from every establishment with the word Ryan in the name in the continental United States. Whoa, no Wagner for you. <laughs> which I don't think is fair and probably not legal. Um, at my 30th high school reunion, uh, we're the fighting Norsemen of North Glen High School um, and I had just such a lovely time, but the next morning I uh, woke up with indicia that I had had more Kolsch than I had intended to have during that, which is mm-hmm. just stunning to me. So I, I know that oh. Buddha would rather I not drink. Oh, blah, blah. blah. Do, do, do it your way. Do okay. it your way. Wow. It's okay. All right. It seems to be pretty severe exclusion there. Every establishment with the word right in the name, but I don't know. I'm guessing how many might that be. I don't know. I'm mad. Or something. God, it makes yeah. me mad. Yeah. It's more the principle of it. Than it is. Yeah. <laughs> I gotcha. Okay. Well, let's move to our first topic of the week. Um, this week, the gossip website Gawker, which has been circling the drain since it's lost in the Hulk Hogan sex tape suit, notoriously backed by billionaire Peter Thiel, finally disappeared down that drain when it was bought by Spanish language network Univision. This case has elicited varying reactions from people who follow media. What's yours? Well, my one word summary, Gawker! Wow. <laughs> 
That's not what they're saying. But I didn't see that coming. What's the guy's name? Andreas Costolantis or something? Something uh, like that. Yeah, That's yeah, right. Goal, great, goal, great goal gawker, guy. Univision rocks. The headline <laughs> is, is an onion-worthy headline is billionaire funded wrestler pins media bullies. Spanish speakers rejoice. Wow. And it's actually true. It's kind of a crazy melodrama. And I do think that now that the, the kind of somewhat cruel and uh, mean-spirited step-granddaddy of the Gawker Empire, Nick Denton, has kind of been stripped away, <laughs> that Univision perhaps has some interesting journalistic assets in Jezebel and Jalopnik and, and some of the other things that they have going to go along with their uh, controlling interest in The Onion. Right. And right. so uh-huh. um, perhaps interesting days ahead for that. Uh, but, you know, they, 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 were, they were quite cruel-minded in, in a lot of uh, the, the, the garbage they put out. Gawker was, yeah, I think, and many would agree. Yeah, mean-spirited. What do you think, Jeff? Talk about paying a proverbial bag of beans for something. Gawker still has an outstanding judgment of $140 million from the Hulk Hogan case and sold for $135 million. Uh, Univision reportedly beat out, and I use that term with air quotes, a lower bid by Ziff Davis and a who's who of other gotcha, yellow, and hyper-tabloid journalism. Folks, the collective sigh of relief you heard was from the Ziff Davis board of directors <laughs> and shareholders. So one thing that I'd like to add, because I found something that I don't think anyone else has seen. I haven't heard much about it, but there was a Gawker spokesperson who put a PR statement out that I think people should listen to. It's well, very interesting. So Gawker Media Group has conspired this evening to fleece Univision by foisting our business and popular brands to Univision, one of America's most gullible and foolish media companies that is rapidly assembling the leading digital media group of outstanding and pending legal and cultural liabilities for equally foolish and gullible millennial and multicultural audiences and shareholders. I am pleased that our employees have been given undeserved cover and will continue their work winky face, under their new suckership, <coughs> ownership, disentangled from the crushing legal campaign, sorry, campaigns against our company. We could not have picked an acquirer more devoted to taking their eyes off the ball and taking shareholders for a ride in <coughs> vibrant journalism. <laughs> so we talked about the legal aspect of it, and it's it's not clear how that's, that the $140 million is going to impact everything, but I do not think that the strategy of saying no habla is going to work. Oh, boy. Well, we will check in maybe a few months down the line and see which one of you guys is right. If this turns out to be a potentially good synergistic investment on Univision's part or a huge sucker play. <laughs> Let's move on. Um, in the what hath the Simpsons wrought department, we pose the following age inappropriate question to you two middle-aged gentlemen. What cartoons are you watching these days and why? There's a lot of good quality stuff out there. Are you guys watching any of it? I'm watching uh, animated uh, cartoons that my children tell me to watch. Mm-hmm. And um, a Bojack Horseman is about a truly horrible human yeah, being who sure. gets more horrible and whatever or whatever he is. That's a good one. And it's a bit tiring. It's just difficult. And Archer is so unrelentingly naughty and inappropriate. I feel dirtier every episode I watch. I watched at the prompting of my son who just adores Adventure Time. I watched the George Takei episode of Adventure Time. Felt like it was in another language. I didn't understand a word. I didn't <laughs> laugh once. I perchance am not the demographic they are perchance aiming for. Not. I do like Bob's Burgers but haven't watched a lot of it. Gave up after a few episodes. My kids 
love these shows, introduce them to me, continue to introduce me, and I can't stop yelling at them to get off my lawn. I feel very old about new popular animation. I see. Almost a feeling like you should be liking some of it because you've heard a lot, but it just it's not quite grabbing. That's them. exactly no, right. Like you said a little bit dirty. <laughs> How about you, uh, uh, Dr. Zen? I'm with you, Brother Jeff. I'm with you. And, and to prevent a complete cultural strikeout on this question, I asked my lovely partner who has five kids ranging in age from six years old to 22 years old, and she came through for me with a recommendation on a series that's actually over, but it's three seasons of Avatar The Last Airbender, which combines an Asiatic-like culture with a Western-type culture with uh, these elementally empowered people fighting the Fire Lord. It was made into a movie which was not critically well-received by M. Night Shyamalan a few years back, but I'm told that it is spectacular for all age groups, incredibly inspiring, and is something that I'm going to watch, and at least I had something to say for your damn question, right? <laughs> oh, nice. Well, you know, we, we try our best to appeal to demographics outside our own, and we have to stretch ourselves a little bit if we hope to have anybody other than, you know, 40 and 50-something males listening to this thing, um, but uh, maybe not so much on that particular issue. Foul tip. Do I yeah. get a foul tip? You get a foul tip. You guys get foul tips. <laughs> but maybe on this one a little bit more meat. This is up your wheelhouse, I think. So there are floods in Louisiana, again. It's sad and tragic and, dare we say, apocalyptic and even biblical. Is this what the biblical flood was like, Jeff, in particular? Shall we expect a modern-day Noah? Give us your takes from the Christian and Buddhist standpoint. And maybe we'll start over with you, Dr. Zen, to give us the, oh. the Buddhist twist on the apocalyptic Sure, it's, it's kind of uh, maybe unexpected, but unbeknownst to a lot of people, including Buddhist practitioners, there are apocalyptic prophecies in the Buddhist tradition, including the most oh. vivid one, which comes from the Kala Chakra Tantra. And it predicts that around the year 2400, 2424 to be specific, there will be a future war which pits a benevolent civilization against a horde of rampaging belligerent invaders. And the the, the point of this war is actually an opportunity to turn from an age of darkness and falling away from great values into an age of peace, to kind of pivot into peace through this conflict with these invaders. And the tools that are ideally brought to bear in this conflict are, number one, a sharing of the technological fruits of the existing civilization, which is kind of interesting, considering this prophecy was made like... 1,500 years ago, <laughs> and technology wasn't what it is today, sure. um, as well as bringing an ethical solidarity, kind of approaching the conflict with a spirit of uh, no, nonviolence, compassion, and freedom from delusion, and bringing those tools to bear that the, the, uh, the invader can actually be overcome and assimilated into a newer age of higher peace. Or it could turn bad <laughs> and go worse. And the final thing, which is really fascinating, is that the war will be waged and won with the assistance of beings who arrive from another planet in flying ships. No wow. way. Yes. Wow. Yes. That's serious. It is. We're Eric von Daniken. I mean, we're like really out there. In, in this particular prophecy. I had no idea Booz had sort of an mm -hmm. apocalyptic mythology, let alone that there were aliens. Nor did I. Buddhist apocalypse, apocalyptic colonic. There's a lot there. That <laughs> was, uh, that was worth the price there. of admission that, right there. That was indeed. In, in my world, it's, it's, I'm going to hit it with a little more personal twist, and, and that is, is that 
first of all, it's not biblical in scale and scope, perhaps, but certainly awful in a local way. That's for sure. And, and I have people in Louisiana through my wife's mm-hmm. side of the family and, and lovely people. And New Orleans is one of the cool towns in yeah, all of the world and that sort of thing. But I would like to uh, point out the fact something all of us know, and that is much of Louisiana is below sea level. Oh, uh, so we true. would uh, better be served. We'd be better served by buying out much of Louisiana and making it a state park. Maybe moving New Orleans to Arizona. Oh, can that be done? Oh, sure. sure. It's cheaper than, than the levees, I think. Um, if you have an elementary school education and understanding of geography alone, you've got to understand that every so many years, much of Louisiana is going to be underwater. I have some of the loveliest relatives on earth there, and we're already making plans to help them rebuild. But that's like (laughs) buying real estate in Japan or Nepal or beachfront property in India. When the inevitable difficulties, catastrophes come, dot, dot, dot. So um, the biblical part of it, you know, it's a a fascinating story. Noah's 601 years old. It's it's a rough way to enter that next hundred years Mm -hmm. uh, with the world being blown up because God essentially says... I I made a mistake. This this, this <laughs> humanity thing was a terrible, terrible mistake. I'm a big enough God. <laughs> yeah. I can say it. My bad. Um, but I'll save one little piece of it. It, ra- it rains for 40 days and 40 nights, which I understand is kind of a, a Jewish prose equivalent to you won't believe how friggin' long it rained. <laughs> That's the official translation. Yeah. Like and uh, and then 150 days exactly according uh, to the to the Bible that the first mountains can be seen. Um, that's not what happened in Louisiana. I mean, for goodness sake, Trump made it down there in a matter of days, <laughs> not Obama or Hillary. But, you know, so it's not quite the same thing. Uh, on the other hand, it is an interesting uh, matter of reflection to talk about if our hearts were so dark and so depraved and that sort of thing that even our creator would wish to maybe start over or, or be sorry that that happened, is our, is our current darkness and, and some of the struggles that we're, we're fighting, is that equivalent to the sort of biblical catastrophe and that sort of thing? And I would have to say no, but it is a, it's a probably a point for us all to reflect and say, are, are we uh, creatures of darkness or light? And can we be more of the light? That's for sure. You're here. Great. Yeah, so, so not a, a cause for concern that actually a biblical flood is upon the rest of the country, but, but an opportunity for reflection. <laughs> very good. It's very uplifting. Whether it's, it's very uplifting. Okay, well, from, from a flood to politics, actually, we don't really like to talk politics on this show because no. everybody else is, but right. We, right. we like to sort of uh, circle around some of the issues related to it. So, tis the season of political polling. Uh, indeed, uh, at this point, like beets and bok choy, they never seem to be out of season. But they've gotten a bit of a bad rap in recent years. In the wake of a few major upsets, their predictive value has been called into question. Nate Silver has famously built a methodology on a sort of meta-polling that merges a range of polls weighted by reliability, which is a bit of an indictment of the value of any specific poll. So my question is, are we seeing the beginning of the end of statistical sampling and political polling as we know it? uh, Greatest of all centers? Doctor greatest of all centers. Doctor greatest. (laughs) Um, You know, you know how much I care for you and how much I respect for you. And, and, And that will never diminish. 
But if you continue to pander to the bok choy interests <laughs> in hopes that you will garner our first sponsorship. We, we need sponsorships, Jeff. We need them. Okay. The, the, All right. We can't subsidize this studio, air quotes, on, <laughs> on my wife's salary. So, okay. uh, All right. Fair enough. Uh, so, what I can. planes, you know, I don't think it's the, the end. It's certainly a beginning of some kind because there, there seems to be meaning in there, but only with the right data and the right questions and the right analysis and everything working perfectly and then nothing happening at the end to blow it up in some way that we didn't anticipate. So it's certainly alchemy and dark art and junk science and plain statistics. I believe that uh, Benjamin Disraeli uh, spoke uh, well in regards to this subject. I'd like to add something and that is, is there are three kinds of lies. Lies, damned lies, statistics, and political polling. Ooh, ouch, a fourth. <laughs> I'm going to be a little bit more favorable about the promise of this type of political polling, but I will start out by saying that there is a debased form of crowdsource wisdom that we see operative on places like Yelp and Amazon.com, where most of the books get a four-star rating and most of the restaurants get a four-star yes. rating, yeah. and you got this kind of reversion to the mean and the numbers just get all washed out, and mm -hmm. then you don't really have any insight, nuance, or wisdom that comes through. But that's, I think, not always happening. I think we get a deeper uh, insight coming from some of these professional mm. pollers. And I think what we have the hard science of statistical analysis marrying up against the soft science of psychological insight, trying to tease out in general and across the collective what people think, feel, and believe, and understanding that people lie. I mean, people are hypocritical. Sometimes they don't even know what they truly believe or how they're going to behave in any given situation. And part of the dark art quality of this polling is to phrase the questions in a way to get kind of under the surface and to understand how they're going to behave. And this type of, you know, look at the collective, it works in ways of looking at different, you know, marketing and different interests and different values that people have. And I, I think there is a lot of promise of, of delving into what people feel strongly about in terms of the collective and it does it's surprisingly effective in a lot of ways obviously they don't catch everything but i think there's a lot of pro promise to get into it as we understand people more and more we can bring the science to bear as well great insights yeah do you really think they're achieving that are they getting at those subtler qualities of people in terms of how they're asking questions i mean these polls are do seem to be blunt instruments on their face right it's just yes or no questions or multiple choice questions and are they really getting at that stuff in the way say like a myers-briggs test would where they're asking you all of these weird questions that you don't even know why they're asking you but they seem to get at some qualities that yes Okay, well that was our last issue of the day. We'd like to conclude with just some reflections uh, from you guys. Jeff, what, what, are, what, are, what are you, some final thoughts? Finally, Ray, what the hell did we ever do to Malcolm Gladwell? I think and we dissed him last podcast is what we did. I don't think that's a fair assessment at all of what happened. Um, and his, it, it, Malcolm Gladwell and his podcast, uh, Revisionist History. Um, which I love to hate uh, and, and do love. Um, I've tried to be the bigger person, which is easy. It's easy for me. But I can no longer allow the vitriol and continuing drumbeat of unwarranted criticism go unanswered and unchecked. It seems he wants, nay, demands a real podcasting beef 
with Dr. Zen and the greatest oh, of all sinners. Wow. In the latest revisionist history, we get the very best and worst of Gladwell, where he concludes that political satire is mostly without worth, which I believe at some level. But then inexplicably dogpiles on Tina's, Tina Fey's portrayal of Sarah Palin, hmm. which in a typical Gladwellian bizarro world inversion, he pointedly criticizes and when Tina Fey's portrayal of Sarah Palin is undeniably one of the only times in political history where political satire actually worked. Yes, <laughs> Palin, right. Palin never right. recovered yeah, from those right. skits. And more than anything else, um, I think it ended her political, national political career. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you know what a diplomat I am. Mm-hmm. How long-suffering I am. But if nationally famous thought leader, economist, and podcaster Malcolm Gladwell is going to perpetuate his attacks on you, the Augustinelli brothers, whom I love, I'm going to fight back. And he seems to love me, by the way, which is is nice. Thank you for defending us. Thank you, Malcolm. So he's apparently writing stuff or saying stuff out there on the internet, which is really Uh, dissing us. It's on the internet somewhere. It is out there. I heard it. I I didn't see it written. Oh, I see. Okay. So next time you're at a cocktail party on his spaceship with him, you'll put in a good word for us. Oh, yeah. I'm going to fight. I love him. Hate him. We'll we'll do great. So lastly, spoke this week with a dear law school friend. Uh, Jason and Monica, they love our show. Um, didn't like your typing. Um, he's, he lives in San Francisco. He does open ocean swimming. Where you get out and you're just swimming, which is terrifying to me sure. you know, because yeah. of all the idea of creatures in the dark. And I sure. mentioned that and he was like, well, yeah, he's, he says, but I don't, that's why I don't wear goggles. Because hmm. and, and I keep my head out of the water. Oh, I see. Hmm. Because um, I, I can see the, the beauty and the cliffs and that sort of thing. And he says, and and so I don't see the Leviathan <laughs> before it devours me. In, in, in so many words, which was stunning to me because it was without. He was not trying to be funny. And and but there was something profound about it, especially as he began to explore it a little bit. When you have your head up and you see the cliffs and, and a great deal of other beauty. There's a tremendous amount of magic, even in a dangerous world. And, and the idea that the, the, what I took away from it is this idea that be at peace with the monsters and enjoy the view. Mm. Boom. Very Love nice. It. Mm. Love mm-hmm. it. Lovely and poetic and just quick suggestion. For Jason's next birthday, you can get him a copy of the old Jaws poster where you photoshopped his face onto the swimming girl. It would be lovely. That's horrible. But it would match the thought. (laughs) He's oblivious to the shark coming up from below. That's horrible. (laughs) Have I destroyed the moment? He's got a great teaching here, and Jeff's brought it out. And I I, I think it's clear the only thing he has to fear is fear of sharks. (laughs) (laughs) That is... If not a thought to live by, it is a thought to end the podcast by. Yes. <laughs> yes. So we'll be back again in a couple of weeks. We all have things to do next weekend, but we will be back shortly for the next episode of Dr. Zen and the Greatest of All Sinners. Appreciate everybody out there in podcast land for giving us a listen. And thanks to you guys for your time this morning. Thanks, guys. You bet. See you soon. See ya.